Now the serpent, this would be Satan, was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree, that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, and for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand, take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man. He placed the cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's account handed down to all humanity through the nation of Israel and his servant Moses to explain our origins and better understand our universe with the fall of humanity and explain things. We are not essentially good. We are essentially sinful. The Bible says that we have all gone astray like sheep. We have all gone astray. And there's none who's done good. No, not one. So we understand from the Bible that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we also know that the wages of sin is death. Now, there in the garden, God gave the choice, and being self-determined beings, humans are, Adam and Eve were self-determined, we're self-determined. The difference between their self-determination and ours is they were without sin. We are born with sin. So even our self-determination, we have a disposition to sin. It's in every cell of our body, and it's passed on to us because that was passed on to us through Adam and Eve. But there in that self-determination, they had a choice, and we have a choice. We can choose to obey God and know eternal life and eat from the tree of life, which is the choice that Adam and Eve had, or to distrust God and think there's something more that he's keeping from us and a chance to rebel against God. God gave him one commandment, 
in chapter 2. You saw it last week. You shall not eat of this tree, knowing that it would bring death. They had to have that choice. That's what self-determination is, because God didn't make us to be artificial intelligence in a relationship with him for all eternity. He created us to have self-determination of choice, to be in a loving relationship with him for all eternity, because he would demonstrate his love for us in time, space, and matter, plus for all eternity through his son, and that's what we're going to respond with with our own choice. He made us in his image so we can love and we can hate. And we have these emotions that God allows us to have. So that choice had to be there. And it was there. And they fell. They fell into sin. And we read this account. The amazing thing about this chapter, as, as dark as it is morally and its impact on the human race and all of our lives, because we're born in sin, and the reason our first word is no instead of yes is because of sin. And the reason we manifest transgressions as we get older and older to authority over us, our parents, our teachers, society, and our bosses, and so on and so forth, is it's a transgression is a manifestation of a sinful nature. It's the reflective symptom of the cause and effect. The cause is a sinful nature. And transgressions are the actual acts of sin. Now, sin, of course, means to miss the mark of perfection, which once Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they fell from perfection. They were in a state of perfection. In our glorified bodies, we will be in a state of perfection through having believed the gospel message and received Christ as our Savior. They chose to submit to the authority of Satan. Eve did, and then Adam, as you saw in the text, chose to submit to the authority of his wife because you listen to your wife. So that that's how that played out. But they, re- they had the authority They forfeited that authority, which is really a whole more expanded Bible study. But in essence, what was perfect and good in chapter 2 is lost with that sin in chapter 3. But in the midst of this fall, the introduction of sin and death to the universe, because it affects everyone and everything in the universe, to the farthest outreaches of our expanding universe, the law of entropy winding down. But in the midst of this sin and its effect on everything in time, space, and matter, from one man, Adam, death came. But in the midst of this fall and this sin, there is a promise and there is a type of a greater hope. And that's really where we want to go tonight. Because there's a promise for our salvation for the human race in this chapter. The first promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ coming to die for our sins is introduced to us in this chapter. And there's also a type of Jesus Christ in this chapter showing us how that we will be redeemed. And the rest of the Bible, from chapter 4 of Genesis on until Christ came, and then the Apostles' Doctrine reflecting back to what Christ had done, and the promise of the kingdom age coming in various prophetic words spoken in the Old Testament, New Testament, and particularly in the revelation of Jesus Christ, all declare to us a good ending. It declares the tree of life being with redeemed sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, the sons of God, as we're referred to in Romans 8. It, re- it declares to us that we'll have the inheritance, we'll be joint heirs with Christ for all eternity in the new heaven and new earth. But the struggle and the progressive revelation of covenants from God in chapter 4 on, progressively through the covenants, takes us toward the redemption of Christ on the cross, the new and everlasting covenant who died once for all, And the hope that we have here tonight as we gather in Jesus' name on July 20th, 2019. So as bad as this chapter is, and I quote Romans 5, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And the grace is here. 
But first we have to talk about the sin because it explains our universe. With this fall, we see Satan, the tempter, tempting with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see Eve giving in to the temptation with the lust of her eyes, her pride, and the lust of the flesh. We know that Adam would have been categorized and classified for those same three areas of falling into sin. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The primary target in this temptation from Satan is to be like God. Just a reminder, I covered it in great detail the other night. Satan, his fall is from a different dimension. And we are told that Jesus said, I saw Satan cast out from heaven. He's from a different dimension. It's not linear. He's from the outside coming in to us who are linear in time, space, and matter. So Satan was cast out. There are many revelations about Satan in the Old Testament prophetic books and New Testament books. It would seem a third of the angels were cast out with him. We know it's an organized army in the spiritual places that wars against the church to this day and has warred against humanity throughout the history of humanity in this fall. We understand that. So Satan comes from outside another dimension, but he's allowed in this dimension. But let no one ever say they're tempted by God. The Bible makes that clear. Every temptation is a test to obey God and submit to God. That's why we're told in James, resist the devil, submit to God, and the devil will flee from you. Whatever might be perceived as a temptation for evil is a test for good for us to show our obedience to the Lord. But the temptation came from the devil, and it was an opportune time. We're told in the New Testament that Satan departed from Jesus when he tempted Jesus. He departed until an opportune time. And he's opportunistic. He looks for the weakest point in my life, your life, our lives. And he tries to keep us from coming to Christ. And once we come to Christ, he attacks, he waits and plots the perfect attack at an opportune time. And he'll attack us with these three categories. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes. And because Adam and Eve were so close to being God, in perfection, made in the image of God, let us make man in our image Satan used the exact same temptation he fell for because when he was the most beautiful of all beings in another dimension in God's presence, he said, I will become God. And it was for that pride of lifted up that he was cast out. And that was the cause of his fall. And that's the temptation he uses for Eve's fall and Adam's fall. But beginning with Eve, that's the temptation. And the devil knows it just takes one thing to keep us from God. Just one thing, like the rich young ruler. One thing you lack, but he wasn't willing to forsake it. The devil only needs one thing to trip us up and keep us from the things of God. But we know that Jesus Christ is victorious where Adam and Eve failed. For it is in these three areas, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes, that Jesus was victorious. Because Jesus is the second Adam. He's, that's one of his titles. And as the second Adam and the head of a new race that we're born into through faith in him, when after he was baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and for 40 days he fasted in his humanity as deity, where he was tempted at the end, and Satan the tempter came with the same three temptations for the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh. Our first head that we're born into, Adam, where our head of the race failed, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, was victorious. He triumphed. And we're told in our own battles in 1 John that the love of the Father is not in these things that are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
where our head failed, Adam and Eve, Jesus succeeded with his perfect sinless life. And we fight the same battles. But the difference between fallen humanity, Genesis 4, all the way to the time of Christ is, they were not availed with the fullness of power. They're still held accountable for faith or unbelief and obedience. But we are imputed with the power by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to be victorious. For Christ died once for all, and his victory of the, res- the cross and the resurrection gives us the power to be victorious over sin through submitting to the Father, even as Adam and Eve were meant to submit to the Father in the garden by choosing the right tree, the tree of life, as opposed to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the devil is the tempter. These are the areas of temptation, and this is where they fell. And the moment they fell, perhaps not with Eve. It's a good conversation when you go out for coffee sometime. Did death, was death already working when Eve fell in the timeline between her fall and Adam's? I'm inclined to say no, but it could be. It doesn't have to be. Because God does not hold Eve accountable for the sin. He holds Adam accountable for the sin. When he called them out, he said, Satan, because you did this, Adam, because you did that. With Eve, he just says, you're going to have pain and sorrow and childbearing. He doesn't say because of anything. And we're not told in Eve all sin. We're told in Adam all sin. The universe is dying because of Adam, not because of Eve. And it's possible that passing pleasure of sin that Hebrews 11 talks about, she experienced that like this europic feeling that you get when, you know, the endorphins are at full mode in the human experience of our fleshly bodies. But when Adam partook, they got the fall. They got the feeling of fall because they're trying to hide their nakedness. So maybe the tree of knowledge of good and evil, she knew the europhic feeling of the pleasure of that fruit. But by the time Adam ate from it, no, the party's over. The honeymoon's over. Everything's over. You're getting evicted. Through Adam, sin entered the world. And sin is death. And all those herbivores went carnivore at that moment. That's when it happened. And the sun, instead of maintaining its energy and increasing its energy it went into retraction through entropy and the entire universe was going out like this without restraint and when sin entered through adam and yes this planet is the center of the universe it is because it's this planet that christ came and died on and he holds the whole universe together and god's word by the holy spirit says the whole universe is dying romans 8 and the whole universe is growing so even as the comets and asteroids and the black holes and everything's doing its thing and in the microscopic world those perfect cells suddenly there's viruses that look like aids and swine flu and they look really ugly because viruses look really ugly when you see them under a microscope they were perfect perfect dna perfect no deformities in, in bodies and reproduction in animal kingdom or anything it was perfect all the deformities and the mutations that all entered What's good is not the result of dumb luck from life coming from death, which the Darwinists believe. What's good is the remnant of what God created in the beginning. And what's bad is what is the effects of our father and mother sinning and bringing death on this universe. But yet we're told that Christ is the redeemer of all things. And he will redeem and reconcile all these things to himself. So sin does not have the final say in the human experience when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Sin does not have the final say in this universe and most certainly doesn't have the final say in his glorious kingdom, the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam was victorious, not just to redeem us from being separated from God as a result of being born in sin, 
or even the grave itself, for the dead in Christ will rise, we're told, through faith in Jesus Christ. But the entire universe, and really the crowning moment of the revelation of Jesus Christ, is the new heaven and the new earth, a greater restoration than what was lost. It's easier for us to understand these two chapters prior to the fall than it is the two chapters that end the Bible, the restoration. But again, it's not just a restoration, it's an upgrade. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross just to restore what was lost. He died on the cross for a greater restoration because it can't be revealed to us the glory that's to come, at least not the vision that Paul received as he describes in 1 Corinthians. Heaven's going to be incredible. C.S. Lewis got a pretty good handle on it in the Chronicles of Narnia in his last book with the last battle when he describes them as they're pressing into the new Narnia, which is heaven. It's a pretty, it, it gets you thinking because he was one of those, one of the most amazing thinkers of all time in human history that was born again in the spirit. And if you've never read the last battle, it's actually a children's book, but it, the concept of heaven and it's multidimensional in the quantum's of the richness and the depths of, of God's love and power are there in the new Narnia. Just the deeper you go in, the more it expands. But I've not seen nor you're heard. We, we receive it by faith. So that's the fall. That's how it happened. Then there's the consequence we see as well. I mean, Satan is, the snake is a reminder of Satan, what happened now is appeared as the serpent, that dragon of old, we're told in Revelation, is the serpent, the tempter. The fall also included the effects on Eve. Greatly multiply your sorrow in conception. We see that there in verse 16. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. So the consequence on Eve and the women on the human race is the sons of Adam are over them. But you know, we all have to submit to authorities that are imperfect, that we don't like. And if your husband is kind of prideful, just pray he'll get a boss that'll teach him what it's like to have to submit to someone who's bossy and pushy or whatnot. But this is the consequence, that women are under the authority of their husbands who are imperfect and sons of Adam. Again, though, Ephesians 5 gives us the promise that through faith in Jesus Christ, the husband can love his wife like Christ loves the church, and the wife can submit to her husband as unto the Lord. So even there, there's a full redemption to bring that back. But I don't know of any women who've ever had children without having pain. And I can tell you this much, if you don't have it in labor, you certainly have it in raising children. So that's just the way it goes, the human experience. Adam, the ground's cursed for him. No matter how hard he works, this never seems to be enough. Just a little bit more, like Rockefeller said, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. There's just a little bit more. And the, the sons of Adam, they get so frustrated and they come home from work grumpy because, because they're, to, they're toiling the soil and it was meant to bring forth fruit that was pleasant to the eyes and just, you know, this wonderful stewardship under the Lord. It's become thorns and thistles and frustration and agitation. And even when the business is going good, you don't sleep well because you're thinking about who's trying to steal it all. That's the human experience. In fact, summarized very well by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, who is the wisest man the richest man, and had all the women in the world, all things that men could ever want without restraint, he had it all in the end of his life. He's like, God, it's all vanity. It's all vanity, and I've done all this stuff, and my kids are going to wreck it, or someone's going to take it. The only thing that matters is that you seek the Lord in your youth, that you fear the Lord and you obey his commandments. That's the sum total of the matter. That's what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. 
So there was consequence for the man and the woman and the male gender and the female gender in the human experience. That was the fall. We are born sinners, male and females, and these are the things that affect us from our father and our mother, Adam and Eve, the woman who came from his side. And them being led astray and submitting themselves to the authority of Satan by choosing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of submitting to the Lord and staying at the tree of life. Thus they were expelled from the garden as we saw in the latter part. But the good news is this, the promise of deliverance in verse 15. This phrase, and between your seed and her seed, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, is an amazing promise because it's the first promise that we get for Jesus Christ. Here God promises, even before the expulsion from the garden, while death is spreading out through the universe or has already spread out instantaneously, supernaturally, faster than the speed of light or sound, that immediate effect in God's universe of what was entrusted to Adam being failed and death coming and death entering the universe through him. But in the midst of even the accountability, there's a promise when speaking to Satan that the seed of the woman, capital S, would bruise the head of the offspring of Satan, if you will, though Satan would bruise his heel. This is properly understood that, of course, Jesus was bruised. The heel was bruised of Jesus when he was crucified on the cross. Satan entered Judas, and that was part of the whole plot that brought Jesus to the cross and just proves that Satan doesn't know everything because, of course, if he knew everything, he wouldn't put Jesus on the cross because it's the cross where he was defeated. We just saw in Colossians that when Jesus died on the cross, he made a public spectacle of the demonic realm, the devil at the top of that list. His humiliation is not only our victory, but his exaltation over the demonic realm and victory for the sons and daughters of God, the children of God, his children who are joint heirs with him. Yes, Jesus was bruised in the heel when he died on the cross, but he didn't stay in the grave and his body did not undergo decay. He went to that place in the grave where he set the captives free and rose on the third day, and many of the Old Testament saints appeared with him in Jerusalem, according to the account of Matthew's gospel. He set the captives free. He first descended and then ascended. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He is the seed, capital S, and we're told in Galatians chapter 3 that he is the seed. He's the seed of Abraham. And all these genealogies you read about in Genesis and Chronicles, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, all the genealogies from the dawn of creation with Adam that take us to Jesus or from Jesus back to Adam as in Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3. They're there to preserve the lineage of all God's promises, messianic promises, that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man and the Son of God. And Mary's genealogy goes right back through this, right to Adam and Eve, because Adam's referred to as the Son of God, but it's Jesus Christ who redeems the sons of God. All the way back. Jesus is the seed. When God made the covenant with Abraham and made that promise to him around 2000 BC, about 500 years after the flood, right after the ice age, he made that promise that from him and his seed, all nations would be blessed. And the New Testament interprets for us by the Holy Spirit that all nations are blessed because the seed is Jesus and he draws all men and women to himself. And in heaven, we see of every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping him. All nations are blessed in Abraham, his seed. The seed is not Israel. Israel was the nation by which the promises were entrusted and the seed would be preserved. But Jesus Christ isn't limited to being the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. That's the seed. So here is this great promise. We are 
profoundly affected the entire universe by the fall of our head of the race, Adam and Eve here, but it is this promise that Jesus would come. And there are hundreds of promises that the Messiah would come. And as God put forth these covenants, the Noah covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and he made these covenants, he progressively expands the understanding of the, the one who would come, the seed who would bring the victory and how he'd bring the victory. But in the first promise, it is implied that he would suffer to bring forth that victory. You will bruise his heel. And every covenant has a sacrifice involved in it. Even when God made the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham had to split the, you know, the, the animals there and the, the whole vision about the nation that would come from him and come out of Egypt. That's the same chapter where it says, by faith, Abraham was justified before the Lord, God, because he believed God and was accounted him for righteousness before any of those things ever happened. Justified by faith with an animal sacrifice in that covenant, that Abrahamic covenant. Jesus was bruised. But through his death, burial, and resurrection, he crushed a mortal wound on Satan that we might be set free. And it's through Jesus Christ and our faith in Jesus Christ, when we receive him as Lord and Savior, that we pass from death to life and his victory becomes ours. And that's why I frequently say, I'm not hoping for victory. I'm coming from victory, as are the saints, the believers of Jesus Christ in every generation. I don't hope for victory. The cross, WG, is not about hoping for victory. The cross is about coming from victory. Victory over sin, victory over the world, victory over death, victory over the fear of the grave, victory over the devil. It's total victory. The cross is total victory. He bruised the head of Satan and defeated him. And even now, we're just waiting for the full redemption of the promises to come to pass. But we live in victory. We don't live in the defeat of chapter 3 of Genesis. We live in the victory of the promises of verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis. God forbid that we'd be wallowing in the mire of verses 6 through 8, trying to sow fig leaves to cover our nakedness. But praise the Lord, we have absolute total victory through Jesus Christ who crushed the head of Satan through his death, burial, and resurrection. The church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the only victorious entity on this planet. And the victory is through being born again through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and passing from death to life, from condemnation to justification. Because Jesus came, he said, the whole world's condemned. He didn't come in the world to condemn the world. He came in the world to save the world because the world's already condemned. But as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. This is our victory, and this is the first promise of how that victory would come to pass. So even on the darkest day in time, space, and matter, the fall from glory of the perfect Superman and Wonder Woman, victory is promised, even in the accountability, the victory is promised that we live in victoriously this day through our faith in Jesus Christ. We also see that in spite of all dying in Adam, which we covered, we have victory in Jesus Christ. And you look at verse 21. So verse 20 and 21 go together. And Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. So again, in Adam all sin and die. This is absolutely established throughout the New Testament. See, there were no human beings born without sin prior to Cain and Abel. We'll get into them next week. And the replacement son, Seth. There were no human beings born. Sin runs right through Adam through Seth, into Noah, the three sons of Noah, and then the disbursement of the nations there in Genesis 10 and 11. You get all that story about the Tower of Babel and all that. And so whether you're an Inca in Central America or 
an Aztec or an Eskimo or a nomadic European tribe, Germanic tribe, the pagans up there in the British Empire, the British Isles, a Viking, Mongolian, Genghis Khan, go way back before them, the dynasty, the ancient dynasty of China. All human beings come through Adam, through Noah, through his three sons, and that's why that's preserved for us, and that's why they're so attacked by the devil. They explain the origin of everybody. In Adam, all sin and die, and that's why everyone's dying on this planet. We're all dying because of this. But through faith in Jesus Christ, this is why the church is going out proclaiming the glorious gospel to the ends of the world. For in Adam all sin and die, but in Christ all will be made alive. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that's why the Great Commission goes forth. That's, we're, we're here to be saved. And once we're saved, we're here to fulfill the call of God on our life. But the mission of the church is to evangelize the world. Beginning in our Jerusalem, our Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so the gospel goes forth. The death came through Eve. She's the mother of all living. Let no one misunderstand that one. But Adam and his wife were covered by the tunics of sin. And even as those fig leaves would look like religion, trying to cover our nakedness and human efforts of philosophy, traditions of men, all those things that were told in Colossians reject those things. For we are completing Christ. But all the things that men and women do to try and get rid of that sense of guilt and nakedness, their conscience holding them accountable or their conscience being seared by their sin and all the things that do that people cover up and because God's put eternity in our heart. So people have fig leaves of all sorts but are unacceptable. Human religion is completely unacceptable to God. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ by which we can be saved. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. He rejects all world religions because they're man's attempt to justify himself before God. But the deeds of the flesh will not be justified before God is evident that Christ came and died for us. Galatians chapter 2 tells us. And if we could be saved through our fig leaves, then Christ died in vain. But Christ did not die in vain because there in the garden he said, if there's any other way, let it be. But there is no other way. The fig leaves will never do. And all the pseudo-intellectual fig leaves that people can put together to try and live with their seared conscience for the sin they rebel against God with or the world religion systems they embrace to live with themselves and concoct of their own mind, gods of their own minds, to somehow hope they're going to get to heaven because God has put eternity in their heart, but they reject Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way. There's no other name by which we may be saved, but the name of Jesus Christ given unto heaven. And when God covered Adam and Eve, he brought in the animal sacrificial system. God brought in the principle of substitutionary sacrifice. God shed innocent blood in the garden to cover Adam and Eve. He brought propitiation, substitution, and covering. God shed innocent blood in the garden to cover Adam and Eve before they were even expelled from the garden. And verse 21 reminds us that God covers our nakedness, not with the blood of an animal shed in the garden. That was an herbivore, but in a universe changing on this day, there is an animal that's blood was shed. I believe it was most likely a lamb. Because in the next chapter, Abel brings a lamb. And Jesus is the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It doesn't have to be that, but I believe it was. And as sick as they felt from their sin, can you imagine when Adam and Eve saw the innocent animal executed and the blood 
It was their first look at death. It's just a warm-up for when they see their dead son killed by their other son. But death makes you sick. If you've ever seen an animal hit by a car, something like that, it makes you sick. In that garden, God took an innocent animal and he executed it in front of Adam and Eve. And blood was shed and the life is in the blood. That's why we can never drink blood because the life is in the blood. And we know that from medical field and science that life is in the blood. And that blood was shed. And just how Adam and Eve felt like the sickening feeling watching one of the animals that was in the garden that they were in care of and over and how sick they felt to see death for the first time. To come from an herbivore, vegan worldview and to see an innocent animal sacrificed and then to see the skins taken off that animal and put over you to replace your fig leaves. That's the first type of Jesus Christ of a sacrifice for us. Abel will will take it forward in the next chapter and that's why he's in Hebrews 11. He's the first person by name in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, because he brought the lamb and he brought the blood and he brought the sacrifice and he came with faith. Adam and Eve didn't have to have faith here. They just, I don't even know what they thought. Supercomputer, put the Jeep on Mars, sing better than anyone's ever sang, compose better than Mozart and Beethoven put together, whatever. Man, when that innocent animal sacrificed before you and the skin is taken to cover you, you understand something. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. That's what you understand for the head of our race. And all those covenants, subsequent covenants, and the Passover feast, and every year the reminder of the blood of the Passover lamb. Every year going to Jerusalem for 15, you know, 1400 years, and they're slaughtering hundreds and thousands of lambs. Would it look like a, a butchery? Reminding us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And then Jesus Christ on the cross crying out, It is finished, because his blood is the perfect blood. It's innocent blood, like the lamb like the animal in the garden. But it's the perfect blood because we fell from eternity in a sense, eternal life, the tree of life. And only one who has eternal life can replace the consequence of that sin. For the wage of sin is death. This was a prelude. This was a, this was a band-aid, this animal sacrifice, this covering. And as they left the garden in shame, they knew good and evil. And all the subsequent generations, they lived for hundreds of years to think about it and watch the human race multiply from them. And as they watched these kingdoms arise, well, the thoughts and the tents of man were only evil all the time. These superhumans and the death and the destruction and all their creativity used for death and destruction in the Canaan world. That's what they saw. But this sacrifice here, the promise before it, and this sacrifice here with blood would have been the cornerstone of their faith for a better future than what they lost from their past in the fall in the garden. And it is most certainly the cornerstone for our future, for what God has for us. Because Jesus is our chief cornerstone. That's what God calls him. There are no more animal sacrifices, praise the Lord, on July 20th. Jesus died once for all. It is amazing grace. We have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And I close with this thought. The Apostle Peter said this in 1 Peter, being led by the Holy Spirit. You have not been redeemed with gold and silver, which are things that men understand and value. How much will it cost? How much gold? How much silver does it take? No, you've been redeemed 
with the blood of a spotless lamb. The most precious asset, equity in this universe is the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, shed on the cross for our sins to redeem us back to the Father. God so loved the world, he gave his son. That is the greatest gift we could ever receive. And it is in the blood. And that's why so many churches say we're under the blood. We're saved by the blood, the power of the blood. And that's why so many liberal Christ-denying churches never mention the blood because the blood is an offense, because the cross is an offense. But our sin is a greater offense. And it is only through this blood and faith in Jesus Christ that we'll ever get to stand before the Lord and enter to the glory that was lost in these first two chapters and particularly from these first two chapters and particularly in this chapter. So we praise the Lord. We're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and our destiny is not the fall of Genesis 3. Our destiny is the glory in the last two chapters of Revelation through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes and amen.